what is the current state of the U.S. economy? As traders, I think most of us know that the market is not always reflective of the economy. But in today's market, I think the state of the U.S. economy is being reflected in many of our markets. In today's show, my guest is Senior Economist at CME Group, Eric Norland. And in today's show, Eric will tell us what he believes the state of the U.S. economy is, and we will discuss if the markets are reflecting the U.S. economy. This podcast is brought to you by CME Group. Whatever the obstacles, CME Group provides the tools that global market participants need to manage risk and capture opportunities. With 24-hour access to futures, options, cash, and OTC products across all major asset classes, you can drive your trading strategy forward with confidence and precision. CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Eric, welcome back to the show, my friend. It's been a while. It has been. It's so great to see you again. Thank you. You know, you were the one of the very first videos I ever recorded was back at CME Group. It had to be five, six years ago. Yeah, I think it must have been 2016 or so, give or take a year, 2015 to 2017, somewhere in that range. Yeah, thank you for being patient with me in one of the first videos I, I did for the podcast. So it's, you really will always have a special place in my heart and on this show. And it's, it's just great to have you back. I love your work. And today I really want to focus on the state of the U.S. economy. And, you know, in my intro, I talked about how I think that many traders know that the economy a lot of times isn't reflected in the market. What do you think about that? Well, so I think that the market sometimes has a delayed reaction to changes in the state of the economy. Uh, if you go back, say, six months ago to the beginning of October, at that point in time, the market did not price even one Fed rate hike for the next year. And so here we are six months later, the Fed's already hiked once. And according to our Fed funds futures, it looks like uh, the, and according to the central bank's own rhetoric, it looks as though the, you know, the Fed's getting ready to do multiple additional rate hikes, maybe even in increments of as much as 50 basis points that maybe could bring rates to 2% or even 3% in the next couple of years. Do you believe that right now, the number one macroeconomic thing that everybody is really focused on in the markets is what the Fed is going to do? Uh, well, I think it's a combination of what the Fed's going to do, but what the Fed's going to do is in a response to what's actually happening on the ground in the economy, which of course is always changing. Um, and I think that there's really a two major themes in the economy that the Fed is really paying attention to. First, the extremely high rate of inflation, which is now um, at a 41-year high. Um, and then secondly, the incredibly tight labor market. Uh, but beyond those two issues, you also have the additional problems of supply chain issues, uh, which are related to COVID lockdowns in China, uh, the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, um, as well as ongoing problems related to COVID that are still uh, working our way through the economy even after two years. And with all of these macro shifts going on, as traders, it's just been difficult. You know, I, I look at all of these different headlines, all the different data points, there's so much to take in. And actually, you put together some slides of some things that you think are very important things for traders to be keeping an eye on. And I want to take us right to the slides just to, to kick things off. So this first slide I have up here is this U.S. corporate profits 
as percent of nominal GDP, 1996 to 2021. Why is this an important slide to take a look at here today? So I think this is really important for everybody in the equity market in particular to understand. Um, corporate profits have expanded to almost 12% of GDP. Um, that's about as high as they've ever been historically. Um, and usually when they start getting up towards 12% of GDP, you wind up seeing somewhat some downward pressures on corporate profits. Um, and so I think the downward pressures on corporate profits we could potentially see are coming from the extremely tight labor market. So corporations are having to pay their workers more and more money. Um, they're having difficulty recruiting talent. So they're going to have to raise wages potentially to bring new people in. Um, and in addition to that, they also have soaring commodity costs, uh, as well as many other costs yet related to the supply chain. Um, so their input costs are going way, way up. Um, and it's not really clear that their margins can maintain this level. And if they can't, that could eventually become a problem for the equity market. Thanks for sharing that, Eric. I want to go to this next slide and let's talk about this one. It says U.S. inflation and unemployment rates since 1953. This is one that I thought was very interesting. Talk to us about what you're seeing here. Um, so you, what you see is a combination of two things. So first, obviously, inflation rates that are um, going now north of 8%. The headline number came in. Uh, just yesterday at positive eight and a half percent. And at the same time, you have unemployment dropping back below 4%. Uh, we've only had below 4% uh, employment a few times uh, in, in the country's uh, recent history. So we had it immediately before the pandemic struck. We got down to 3.5%. Uh, we had it you know, briefly in 2000. Um, and then you really have to go back to the late 1960s. Uh, but I think the concern here uh, for anybody who trades interest rates or equities or currencies or commodities, um, is that in some ways, this is beginning to look like the late 60s. You have a very tight labor market uh, and inflation has become, first of all, unstable. Um, then secondly, on a very, very market upward trend. Um, and so the 1970s were a very difficult time uh, for investors for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but you know, I think there's a fear that maybe we could see some sort of uh, a return to that kind of an economy. What I want to do is I want to keep going through these slides because we only have a couple more left. And I think a little bit later in the show, what I think would be really interesting is, is to go to all of the charts to see how you think these slides that you're showing us are currently impacting the markets, or maybe they're not currently impacting the markets in May down the road. So I actually want to go to this next slide here, and this next one is the Federal Reserve total assets as of March 16, 2022. Talk to us about this one. Yeah, so the Federal Reserve just finished this massive quantitative easing program. Um, curiously, they had actually begun quantitative easing even before the pandemic struck. Uh, then you see that period in 2020 when the line goes pretty much vertical. They did yeah. three, uh, they did, I think $3 trillion of QE in three months. Um, and then after that, they continued to expand the balance sheet up until February. Um, but now they have announced uh, that they're going to begin shrinking the size of their balance sheet. They're going to shrink it at $95 billion per month, uh, which if they continue that over the course of the year, would take it down by about $1.1 trillion over the course of the year. Um, so a lot of the, what we've seen in the last two years is this tremendous asset price inflation, this huge run up in many commodity prices. Uh, as well as the uh, equity indices, most notably the NASDAQ. Uh, but now the Fed's going to start pulling that liquidity back out of the market. Um, you're also starting to see the impact on long-term bonds, which 
um, in the last few weeks have really started to see a significant rise in yields. Um, so this, I think, is, is, is a really uh, going to be a big change for the markets and the market dynamic. Last slide before we go to the charts to see how these slides that you're, everything you're discussing here are impacting or not impacting the markets is this U.S. producer price inflation. So I think this one really goes together with the corporate profits chart. So corporate profits soared to 12% of GDP, but now producer prices, which are essentially what corporations pay for what we would call intermediate goods, like products that are not really quite finished, um, but you know, components for different goods that they're assembling, et cetera. Um, these goods are, these goods have seen their prices increase by 20% year on year. Um, that means input costs for a huge number of different companies are soaring. And that could potentially put a lot of downward pressure uh, on corporate profits. Uh, so some of this 20% rise in producer prices will be passed on to consumers, which we see in the 8.5% rise in, in consumer prices. Uh, but the remaining part um, is likely to be absorbed by corporations in the form of smaller margins. A lot to digest here with those slides. And thank you for going all of, over all of that for us. So I've been taking some notes and what I think the markets I want to pull up here and talk about how those things are directly impacting markets. I think obviously we have to go look at rates, right? I'm going to pull up the micro treasury yield futures, the two fives, tens, and thirties. You mentioned NASDAQ. That's the market I trade a lot, you know, tech stocks definitely should be taking a look there. I also want to go to oil. A um, little bit of mention of that in the slides, but I think we can take a look at oil and see what they're doing. And then I also want to go to go to gold because gold is one of those. I'm going to be curious to see what you think about it because a lot of what you're saying made me think about gold. But when I look at gold on the chart, I mean, a little bit of movement earlier in the year. I mean, yeah, we're trying to grind higher, but we're not just seeing what I would think gold would be an outperformer in this type of environment is actually happening. So we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to go over each one of those markets and talk about how much Eric thinks the U.S. economy is impacting these markets or not impacting these markets. And maybe there's opportunity uh, right in front of us back in 30 seconds. We empower those who act. Those who see the correlation between upswings and downswings. Those who manage risk by meeting each obstacle with a perfect executed strategy, a measured approach, the right tools, driving accuracy. CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. All right, everybody, we are back. Eric, I want to start off with the two, five, 10, and 30-year micro-treasury yield futures. Just look at this chart. I just pulled it up here is the micro-two-year yield futures. Talk to us about the yield curves, what you're seeing, and we'll just start off here with the two-year. Well, I think there's two things to note about the yield curve. First, that it has uh, changed dramatically in the last few weeks or the last couple of months. You know, as we mentioned, at the beginning of October, um, people don't think the Fed was going to raise rates at all. They've already raised rates once. Um, now, if you look at this two-year uh, two uh, treasury yield future, you see that uh, a few days ago, it up to 2.7% yield. It had been, uh, it had been, uh, it looks like 0.7% uh, just a few months ago. That's just an enormous change. Um, so you know, yields have gone up very, very dramatically. 
but they've gone up particularly dramatically at the very short end of the curve. Um, so now the yield curve has this very strange shape uh, where traders seem to expect that the Fed's going to first hike rates a great deal, uh, maybe up to two, three percent, maybe even three and a quarter in a couple of years. And then the market price of the Fed's going to subsequently start cutting them back um, and maybe settle them in the end around two and a half percent. This is a really interesting yield curve shape. This is a very unusual uh, curve shape. Usually curves are either positively sloped, flat, or, or inverted. Uh, but to have one that has sort of multiple shapes going on um, is extremely unusual in the history of the market. What are your thoughts on everybody talking about how the yield curves are now indicating a recession? What do you think about that? Um, so first of all, I just don't think it's correct. Um, I, I don't think that that's actually a correct view. When I, I, I spend a lot of time doing research on the relationship between yield curves and recession. Um, and the yield curve is a very, very powerful predictor. But I think the mistake people are potentially making here is they're looking at an inversion in one segment of the yield curve. Um, and they're reading into that uh, something that may not really be there. If you look at the entire yield curve, the difference between, say, three months uh, T-bills on the short end and 30-year treasury yields on the long end, um, that yield curve is still very, very positively sloped. And it's that very sort of maximalist yield curve uh, that gives the best indicator of where the economy is going. But there is something very interesting here I think is worth pointing out. So what the market seems to be saying is the market seems to be saying that perhaps in one or two years' time, the Fed might have raised interest rates so much that the yield curve then might be inverted. Uh, which then might be signaling problems in the economy that come maybe six months or 26 to 24 months after that. Uh, so the market seems to think we're, gonna, is, we're still in this really strong growth phase for another year or two, but maybe if the Fed really jacks up interest rates to a really, really high level, that eventually, um, maybe sometime around 2025, 26, uh, you could eventually see a, a downturn. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of ifs in that statement, so I wouldn't read too much into it. I mean, the the tweets were flying around uh, uh, about this, and, you know, I'm not someone who's done a ton of work researching how that's impacted markets, but, you know, people just continue to keep talking about it. And also something else I see a lot of people keep talking about is a lot of times when the Fed starts to talk about raising rates as much as they've been talking about, and like you even said, potentially 50 basis points at the next meeting or even more in upcoming meetings that that almost is indicating that by next year, they'll already be cutting rates. I've been seeing a lot of people talking about that. They're saying that the Fed yeah. is, it, it, when they start to do this, it's actually almost like we're getting ready to start cut rates. I was like, okay, what do you think about that? Well, you know, the market seems to be looking back into history and seeing lots of examples of this. So for example, in 1994, uh, the Fed hiked rates 300 basis points. They took rates from 3% to 6%. Um, and then in early 1995 or throughout 1995, they cut rates back three times. So they went up 300 and then they went back down exactly. 75. Um, yeah, then in uh, late 90s, they raised rates 175 basis points, um, actually wound up creating a recession and then had to cut rates 550 basis points. Um, and so if you look back even recently to say 2018, uh, the Fed had been hiking rates a bunch of times. They got rates up to two and three eighths percent. So they raised rates over 200 basis points and they had to cut rates 75 basis points in 2019. 
Uh, so the market seems to believe that the Fed is going to overshoot and then correct. That's, that's the pricing in the market. Yeah, so you can see why a lot of people are saying that. And like I said, I, I didn't know some of those stats that you just pointed out, but that's very interesting because let's face it, it, you know, it gets me starting thinking a little bit that if the Fed starts raising it the way that they are, and if things don't work out the way that they want, we could be seeing <laughs> rates getting cut. Uh, I'm actually, I'm going to go back to the charts because I, I pulled the charts off just for a second, just because I wanted to hear you talk about the yield curves. But I just want to show everybody this and, I, and we'll get your your thoughts on this before we go to other markets. But you have the two-year 2.41, you have the five-year 2.66, you have the 10-year 2.685, the 30-year at 2.798. I mean, when you look at this, why would anybody want to even buy a 30-year you know, at this point when the way you look at and you can get 2.5% on a two-year. You gave us some historic stats on the yield curve inversions. What has happened in the past when you've seen something like this, uh, where you've had almost all of them at the same percentage? So I think that there's one piece that's missing here that I know piece is still missing here is, is what the three-month rate is at. Um, so if you look at the actual cost of borrowing for banks at the moment, the Fed has Fed funds you know, as, as of this day at three-eighths of a percent. Um, so the banks can borrow money at three eighths of a percent and they can lend it for two years at say 2.4%, uh, for five years at 2.6%, for 30 years at 2.8%, et cetera. Um, and so they can still make a decent profit margin off of that. Um, I think the problem for the banking system is, you know, eventually if the Fed does do these series of 50 basis point rate hikes, uh, which is what the Fed funds futures was pricing, at least up until very recently, um, yeah, that suddenly that yield curve, their cost of funding becomes much, much higher. Um, you know, during the 1980s, um, the kind of yield curve that we had now is fairly typical. Uh, if you go back to years like 1984, 85, 87, 88, um, you would have yield curves that were kind of steep at the short end and then kind of flat at the longer end. And the economy did okay with those until 1989, uh, when the Federal Reserve raised interest rates up to almost 10%, inverted the yield curve. And then in 1990 and 1991, we had a downturn. Um, but you know, I think the important thing is not just to focus on twos, tens or twos, thirties, but to look at three months all the way to the end. Interesting. I want to go back to the charts and I'm going to go to gold here. So this is one where I was very curious to see what you think, because part of what I was wanting to do with you today is obviously get a sense of the state of the of U.S. economy. Now, with everything that we all looked at today with what you discussed in those slides, do you think gold is reflecting what you've been talking about in its price action? I do, and I think it's a very complex story. So I have a quick question for you. I was wondering if you could bring up a longer history of gold and maybe put in five years worth of the price. Because then I think you'll be able to see, um, uh, see, yeah, so yeah, this is kind of perfect. Yeah, like especially if you kind of focus in uh, on the part since, um, since maybe 2017 or so. Um, so I actually pulled up a monthly chart and this goes back to like the 1970s. So I'll squeeze yeah. this out a yeah, little bit more. Squeeze it out a little bit. So you yeah. want to go out to like, so here's yeah, 2012 like, to, so this is 10 years. Yeah. When you, when you look at this kind of end part of the chart, uh, the part really from 2020, um, for a while gold had been in a sort of narrowing pattern and a sort of wedge formation uh, where you had, you had it trading at a narrower and narrower range. And then suddenly it broke out of that range um, 
earlier this year, where it kind of broke out of its narrowing channel and popped up to the upside. Now it hasn't yet achieved a new high, uh, which is, you know, I think important. Um, but from an economic perspective, I think what's happened to gold here is, is pretty simple. So in 2019, well, 2018 and 2019, gold had a pretty good time. And the reason was, through that reason we talked about a few minutes ago. So what the Fed did is they had been tightening policy in 2015, 16, 17, 18, and gold was not doing well. Gold typically does not like tighter monetary policy. When the Fed reversed course in 2019 and early 2020, you had this massive rally in gold. But then the problem for gold is the Fed got rates down to pretty close to zero. So it was kind of out of upside. So gold began consolidating in this very narrow range. Um, now, gold is supposed to be an inflation hedge. So in theory, you may have imagined it was going to benefit from this surge in inflation up to 8.5%, but it didn't really benefit very much. But at the same time, you had this sea change in expectations where people started expecting drastically higher rates from the Federal Reserve. Um, so on the one hand, inflation was pulling gold higher. On the other hand, this expectation of Fed tightening was pulling gold back down. Um, and so I think what's going on now in the gold market is gold saying, okay, well, inflation seems to be pretty persistent. Fed's going to raise rates. Um, that's kind of a mixed bag. But now the market's expecting the Fed might raise too much and then cut rates back. And that could be, um, and it's the, the sort of potential for future rate cuts after the rate increases that the gold market seems to be liking here. Exactly. I mean, that's what makes us so difficult for traders like myself. I speak with people like you to understand the macro side of things. I have to go and always get something uh, on the charts to prove to me whether or not that is really mattering to a market. And that's why when I looked at gold, I was like, you know what? It didn't make a higher high. But after you talked about it from that perspective, I do understand what you're saying. And it makes more sense to me now um, why gold is doing what it's doing. And next, I want to go to crude oil because, well, let's let's take this one down to a daily here, and let's just go to pretty much. Yeah, I think that's a that's pretty good. So when you look at oil here, I mean, talk about a market that uh, is truly reflective of supply and demand. You talked a little bit about in your slides that some of the macro shifts are with the supply and and demand issues. Talk to us about what you're seeing in crude oil. So, you know, crude oil, if you go back to the part before the 23rd of February, um, so you have it up here, you see there's this nice steady uptrend. That nice steady yes. uptrend, I think, was uh, based on the assumption that the world was reopening, people are going to return to the offices, they're going to start traveling again. Um, and so we had this really, really nice steady uptrend, you know, all throughout uh, last year and into the beginning of this year. Um, that was just sort of the reopening story. So things are reopening, so demand is increasing, but at the same time, the suppliers are very reluctant to raise production. OPEC does not want to raise production. They're enjoying the higher prices. Um, they kind of need the revenue because they're compensating for that period of very, very low prices two years ago, uh, which they you know, weren't achieving their revenue goals. Um, and then likewise, you have the US suppliers, the frackers, et cetera. Um, a lot of them had big losses back in 2020. Um, so they're enjoying this period of higher prices. Their cash flows are improving, but they're a little reluctant to begin uh, large-scale investments. So the supply is not really rising in line with demand. Um, then, of course, on the 24th of February, uh, Russia began its its conflict with Ukraine, um, and you had this tremendous period of worry that well, that's going to uh, you know choke off a lot of supply. And then the market, I think, is sort of backed off of that. People are 
thinking to themselves, okay, well, uh, the thing is nobody who is a consumer of Russian oil, no matter how they feel about what, about what's happening in Ukraine, uh, is in a position to immediately cut back their consumption of oil. Um, so, um, uh, things have kind of backed off of that a little bit. Um, and now you have this additional issue of these, uh, a, a return to lockdowns in China. Uh, for example, Shanghai is in a lockdown, um, Shanghai lockdown is expected to reduce China's consumption of oil by about 4% this month. That's just Shanghai alone. If you look at China's 100 largest cities, something like 93 of them have some sort of COVID restrictions in place. Uh, so China um, is one of the world's biggest oil consumers and its consumption of oil, at least insofar as March and April are concerned, and maybe May as well, um, and possibly even further in the future, is starting to really uh, look like it's going to be pretty weak here. Um, so you have all these cross currents. Everybody else is still reopening. China's locking down. You have the geopolitical issues. Um, it's a really, really tough spot for the oil markets. Yeah. Going back to what you said in here, it all made sense, right? You know, obviously everything that happened in here did as well. Now brings us to where we are now. And I just see, I mean, it's just a lot of push and pull now. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, that's one of the most difficult things I think as traders right now is that when you really look at this just from a charting perspective, we're really just kind of back in the middle of the range from that big, huge move up from the end of February till um, and that happened at the beginning of March. And now we're caught in here. And like you said, with Shanghai um, and just everything else going on globally, it's a lot of push and pull. And so you think ultimately that we probably have some weakness, at least in the short term, um, because of what you talked about with Shanghai, but just like with that, I look at it and go, they're going to reopen again, you know, and I look at it and say beyond Shanghai, let's just say um, that that all of a sudden starts to open up again. Does that then add a bid to oil? Because I don't see anything else really changing. I, I think in the, in the short term to, to really hurt the price of oil, or am I wrong on that? Well, you know, I think that there are risks both ways. So I think China's economy. Uh, is encountering problems that go beyond COVID. Um, even before uh, COVID started ramping up there again, uh, there had been this big crackdown on the real estate uh, sector in China. Um, and so China's real estate uh, sector, which is a tremendous portion of their GDP, uh, something like almost one third of GDP is real estate related, uh, which is much higher than it was, by the way, in the US, even back in 2006 and 2007. Uh, before the housing crisis that, uh, that led to the global financial crisis. Um, and so China's economy is in this kind of very difficult phase where it's slowing down a lot. Um, their industrial production is slowing down. Um, and China also uh, you know, saw their exports surge during the pandemic because people were buying all these manufactured goods. Now that the rest of the world is reopening, people are focusing more on experiences, on services, on travel. Uh, so none of this is particularly great news for China's economy, and they have a very, very highly valued currency. You know, most central banks, including the Fed, obviously, are tightening policy. The Chinese central bank is easing monetary policy, and yet they have this very strong currency, uh, which doesn't seem to quite jive with what's going on uh, relatively in their economy. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of risk here for oil and for a, a whole range of commodities, especially the industrial metals, um, in relation to what's going on in China. So it really just com comes down to push and pull truly on the supply and demand side of things with oil, right? Because it's really hard to predict if we start to have a slowdown that 
even though there may not be as much oil being produced, there may not be as much oil being used. So you think that that's why it's going to create a little bit of back and forth. And there's really not one side more dominant than the other. Yeah. And I think from the moment, the real action is on the demand side. Uh, the supply side looks very, very stable. I mean, the U.S. producers might like to increase production, but they're facing a tight labor market. You know, when we had the fracking revolution that began around 2008, uh, they were able to find workers so easily in 2009, 10, 11, and 12 because we had high unemployment. Um, now with unemployment at really low levels, they're not going to be able to find workers to do that very difficult work as easily. Um, so that's going to be a problem for them. The OPEC countries are not really seemingly in the mood to increase production very much, even the ones who do have some spare capacity. Um, so it's really kind of a pull of demand between potentially weaker demand in China and potentially much stronger demand in the rest of the world. Yeah, Matt, that's going to be something to watch. Gonna be a lot of volatility, I think, in crude oil within this little bit of range here. Last market I want to talk about today is the NASDAQ. Obviously, what's happening with the Fed and interest rates, I think majority of the people understand that that's going to impact tech stocks. We're seeing that in the price action in NASDAQ. And I pulled up a chart here on a daily, you know, this is back from the beginning of COVID. And then I remember back um, during this time, March and April, I was doing some interviews and people were talking about they did more QE in that period of time than they did the entire, uh, however many years since 2008. And now we're back, like you said, well, with the Fed raising rates. What do you think about uh, how everything you're seeing with the Fed and how it's impacting the NASDAQ? So I think that, I think there's some really interesting dynamics here. And I think uh, it's kind of helpful to go back to the sort of theoretical model of what should the equity market be doing um, in theory. Um, yes. So in theory, uh, according to financial theory, take it or leave it, according <laughs> to financial theory, what the equity market ought to be doing is it should be taking expected cash flows in the future all the way out to infinity and discounting them back into the present moment uh, by using long-term interest rates to discount those cash flows back into present value. Um, and so I think the, the market's view here is that uh, people are you know, pretty optimistic about the tech company's ability to generate revenues and profits over the long-term. Um, that I don't think has changed very much. The tech companies, you know, in some ways, they're a little independent of the rest of the economy, not completely, but you know, their revenues are not necessarily super cyclical like some other sectors are in the market. Um, on the other hand, as long-term interest rates creep upwards, the net present value of their future earnings, by definition, has to start falling. Uh, so the NASDAQ is showing itself to be very, very sensitive to what's happening at the long end of the yield curve. Um, now, this makes it even more complicated with the Fed. So the Fed's hiking short-term interest rates may actually be helpful in a way to the NASDAQ. And this is the reason why. If the Fed is very aggressive about hiking short-term interest rates, it might slow down the economy, which could reduce inflationary pressures, which in turn might keep a lid on those long-term bond yields that are so risky for the NASDAQ. Um, on the other hand, you know, if long-term bond yields start going higher because the Fed's now reversing QE, um, and are now selling $95 billion worth of bonds into the market every single month. And as long-term bond yields start going up, say, past 3%, maybe past 4%, it calls the NASDAQ's valuation and the valuation of equities more broadly into question. 
I mean, no doubt. I was just pulling up. I pulled up the 30-year the bonds. I pulled up them on the micro-treasury yield and the 30-year bond futures contract just to give everybody a sense of what it looks like compared to the NASDAQ. And Eric, there's so much going forward with what happens here with Fed and rates that is going to pretty much impact. I mean, obviously, interest rates impact everyone. Uh, we all know this. But the impact on the markets and the amount of volatility this is going to create in all the different markets that we talked about today it's going to be really interesting because like we said, there's, we could be looking at a totally different environment in a year from now, potentially, you know? So I, I think we, we took a lot in today. Like I said, this is not me. I'm definitely more of the technical trader. I lean on people like yourself to educate me and understand what's happening in the state of the U.S. economy to help me put that into context as to what's happening technically in markets. And you definitely helped us with that picture. Before I let you go, if you could just summarize what you think the state of the U.S. economy is and what are the things we should be looking for? Uh, I think in the near term for traders, we don't need to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the things that we should be focused on in the near term. Okay, so in two words, I think the U.S. economy is white hot. Um, it's 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 you know potentially overheating. Um, and so I think that things I would focus on um, in terms of pure economic data is the month-on-month -month number uh, for CPI, especially the X food and energy number. Um, so the year-on-year -year number, everyone looks at the year-on-year -year number. So year-on-year -year number recently came out at 6.5% year-on-year. This is a problematic number because when a new number comes on, an old number falls off. Um, so last year in April, May, and June, the numbers were something like up 9 tenths, up 7 tenths, and up 8 tenths, if I remember correctly. Um, so unless we beat those, the year-on-year -year number is likely to start falling in the next three months. But on the other hand, if the Fed's really going to get us back to 2% inflation, then we should only be seeing two-tenths of 1% increases every month or so, give or take. Uh, but you know, even this last month, we saw three-tenths of a percent. In the previous five months, it was more like half a percent, uh, six-tenths of a percent per month. Um, if those numbers keep, you know, we just take whatever number comes in and multiply it by 12, and you have the annualized version of the inflation rate. And that's been bouncing around from 3.6% to 7%. Um, this is really critical because if long-term inflation expectations are not contained, then almost by definition, at some point, those long-term bond yields are going to have to go much, much higher. The Fed might have to raise interest rates much higher than it currently thinks. And that could be potentially really bad news for equities um, and complicated news for gold. Um, and the other thing I look at is the labor data. Um, so, you know, we've gone back to just one and a half million jobs below uh, peak employment from 2019. Employers are, so look at the NFP data, but not so much the month on month change, but the total number of people employed. And just compare it to where we were at the height in 2019. We're almost back there. And there's a separate survey called the JOLT survey that measures uh, job listings and jobs openings. Employers are looking to hire. 11.2 million workers. Where do you find 11.2 million workers when you're only one and a half million workers below peak employment? Even if the population expanded a little bit over the last couple of years, you're still looking at maybe like two and a half million people available to fill 11 million jobs. And so this is what's causing wages to go higher. And inflation over the long term is pretty simple. It's, uh, it's basically growth in wages minus growth in productivity. Uh, so wages are growing at 6% per year and productivity grows at 6%, inflation will be low. But productivity is not growing at 6%. It never grows at 6%. 
uh, at least not sustained over the long term. You know, if it grows at a really fast pace over the long term, maybe 3%, uh, but more commonly 2% or 1%. Um, so we have to get that wage growth down close to the level of productivity, or we have to get the productivity growth faster up to the level of wages in order to prevent inflation from taking root over the long term. Traders, keep an eye on those interest rates. You hear what Eric's talking about. I mean, the, the ramifications are in every, pretty much every market that we talked about today. And, and if we didn't talk about that market today, let me tell you what, interest rates are going to impact them. And I think there's no better products than the micro treasury yield futures. I love those new products, Eric. I mean, they make it so much easier to be able to just go and see what the rates are right now. I mean, just being able today just to see how the two, five, 10, and 30 were. And of course you have the, you have the ultra bonds, you have the bonds, the treasuries, and you have the two and five year futures as well. But Eric, I can't thank you enough. It's been way too long since you and I spoke. Uh, let's definitely keep up this conversation. Your insight is great. Tell everybody where they can go. Obviously go to cmegroup.com, but I know that you're always writing or you're always putting a lot of more content out. Is there anything specific maybe we should be looking for that you do on a regular basis with CME? Uh, well, we do write a lot of papers. The papers are all on the website. Um, there's one paper I think jives particularly well with the discussion today. It's a paper that actually just came out, um, actually just mailed out uh, and put on the website, I think earlier this morning. Um, and it's a paper that discusses what that market scenario is. You know, what is the scenario that traders are kind of implicitly pricing? Uh, you know, I, I, and I don't mean to say that investors necessarily speak with a single voice, but uh, you know, the, in, in markets, there's an infinite range of possible outcomes, but there's sort of one outcome in the middle of that infinite range that traders seem to think on balance might be the most likely. And that's just a really interesting uh, story that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, uh, but we do videos that are also on the website as well um, and, you know, all sorts of other content. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. Everybody, you can go to cmegroup.com to find that. Make sure you get on the email list. You could also follow CME Group on Twitter at CME Group. Eric, thank you again. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for all of the great work you put out there. I really appreciate you joining me again, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Never miss an episode. Go to anthonycrudelli.com and get on our email list for show notifications and for free content that is exclusively for subscribers. Also on anthonycrudelli.com, you will find tons of videos and education on trading futures, options, and crypto. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Opinions expressed are solely my own and my guests, and they do not express the views or opinions of my sponsors. Future's radio show is produced by Crudelli Productions.